We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Hello, everyone, and hello, Adam. Hey, good evening, Richard. Okay, today we're going to be talking about Ayman al-Zahiri, leader of Al-Qaeda. Adam, you've been doing some more study on him recently, so I think maybe um, I'll just turn over to you for a while, and you can maybe do a bit of a, a lecture on al-Zahiri's life, whatever you want to say there, and then I'll pop in with some questions that whatever occurs in my mind. Is that agreeable as a way to yeah, proceed? That sounds, yep. Yeah, that sounds fine. Um, most of what I'm going to talk about comes from the book uh, written by Matasel al-Zayat, and the name of the book is The Road to Al-Qaeda. Um, Zayat was a close friend and an associate to Ayman al-Zahiri for many years. Um, a little bit about who al-Zayat was. Al-Zayat was... Um, initially rounded up as a suspect in Anwar Sadat's assassination, where he was detained for three years and released due to insufficient evidence. He met Ayman al-Zawahiri there in Egypt, in which al-Zayed later became a lawyer and had Ayman al-Zawahiri as a client, um, in which he became uh, later on strongly critical of al-Zawahiri's policies and even quoted from the Washington Post as saying, Quote, he always thinks he is right, even when he is alone, end quote. Um, a little bit about uh, the ideology that these Egyptian cells, which I will um, talk about in just a minute, and I think this is important for anybody following along. Um, Islamists believe that all Arab governments are practicing what they call jahaliya, um, which, which means ignorance or paganism. Um, all Muslim lands, as well as led by secular governments, should be governed under Sharia law, Islamic law. And that there are four sources of, of Sharia law, one coming from the Quran, one coming from the Sunnah, which is um, the authenticated hadiths of the Prophet Muhammad, which came after Muhammad's death. The, the Qiyas, which are the analogical reasonings behind the, the laws and the Ijma, which is the juridical consensus, the lawful consensus behind Sharia law. Now, Islamists are distinguished from mainstream Muslims, and that's because they are more politically active in promoting a government based on those uh, Islamic uh, lawful principles. Uh, and also, Islamists 
um, also believe in using the term dawa, which is uh, the invitation to Islam. The, the dawa approach, which is to, to achieve um, social change through a bottom-up approach, through the societal into the government. And the term dawa literally means calling, um, which refers to the, um, the, the practice of Muslims calling others to the right path or a life guided by um, Islamic orthodoxy. Now, jihadi Islamists are a minority within the Islamist movement, um, and they believe in a more militant approach to social change. Um, in terms of enacting violence against government, secular government, um, the questionable point in Islamist circles has always been whether they should target civilians through these like uh, terrorist uh, actions. And in the very beginning, uh, through the formation of the Muslim Brotherhood, they were dead set against this. And this was in the works of, say, Hassan al-Banna, who was the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, even the more radical Saeed Qutb, who was a co-founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, he was very uh, keen to overthrowing secular governments, uh, but not at the behest of civilian people, because he, they figured that if you can, if you enacted violence or terrorist violence towards the civilians, it would basically um, uh, almost be hypocritical to what they were trying to enact, which is uh, Sharia law within the government. Because if you don't have the backing of the people, well, what good is a Islamic government? Um, so that's why they were against. Uh, uh, committing acts of violence against uh, even, even non-Islamic civilians. Um, this in itself would become a very important focal point in the future of jihadi groups when al-Zawahiri became a vis more visible fixture after the, um, the Soviet-Afghan war, when he influences people like Osama bin Laden to extol asymmetrical warfare, even at the behest of civilians. Uh, starting in 1998, when the World Islamic Front stated that all U.S. and Israeli civilians are to be killed wherever you find them. A long, a long cry from Islamists like Abdul Azam, who's a Pakistani imam who denounced such activities, as well as Umar al-Talisani, who is the third general guide, the leader of the Islamic Brotherhood, who announced violence should be used as his last resort. And a quote, I'll use a quote to Al-Sasami, according to this consensus, violence can only be applied only as last resort and only following an application of the jurisprudence of balances that indicates that success is certain and that the harm caused in the process would not be greater than the benefit incurred, end quote. Now, a little bit about Al-Zawahiri himself. Al-Zawahiri grew up in a neighborhood called Mahdi uh, in Cairo, Egypt. His father, Muhammad Rabi Al-Zawahiri, was a surgeon, and he taught at Cairo University. His mother, Umayya Azam, was politically active and came from a very wealthy family. Um, she was the daughter of Abdel Waham Azam, who was the founder of King Saud uh, University, the first University in Saudi Arabia. Um, Ayman has a younger brother, Muhammad al 
Zawahiri and a twin sister, Hiba Muhammad al-Zawahiri. And both siblings exclaimed that at a very young age, Muhammad was a very quiet, a very shy, studious uh, child, a voracious reader. He hated contact sports and thought they were inhumane, a thought that was also um, extolled on by Saeed Qutb, who would also remark that he saw a boxing match while he visited the United States uh, around the summer of uh, 1947, uh, in which he saw a boxing match in Colorado and said that it was inhumane and barbaric. Um, this, oh, I'm sorry, it was in the summer of 1965 where Ayman al-Swahiri would join the Muslim Brotherhood. And one year later, Saeed Qutb, um, who would have a resounding effect in Ayman's life, was executed. Um, during this time, Zawahiri excelled in all his studies wherever he went. And then um, he then served in the Egyptian army in 1975. At the same time, in 1978, he's earned his master's in surgery from the University of Cairo. Um, he was always a an avid follower of Saeed Qutb's works, including the infamous book Milestones, in which he preached that to restore Islam and free Muslims from Jalaliyyah ignorance and paganism, there would have to be this vanguard of true Muslims, which would model itself after the original uh, works of the Prophet Muhammad. And this had to be developed from the government itself. In other words, he wanted to institute Islamism, or what they call um, the political Islam, not from the bottom down, but from the top down. And that's what differentiated Qutb from the works of other older uh, Islamist um, imams. This, this vanguard, if you will, would have to be willing to commit to physical change of the current Arab governments, even if by force, because Qutb actually thought that um, political Islam would not come through, uh, uh, through necessary peaceful means. So Zawahiri, Ayman al-Zawahiri, would be arrested um, due to his contact with those um, with Sadat's assassination in 1981. Um, even though he wasn't primarily involved, um, most of the people that were around, I think it was about 380 people total, it could have been more, um, that was rounded up uh, by the newly elected president, uh, Hosni Mubarak. Um, Sadat actually had a uh, tentative relationship with the religious sector, actually gave them a little bit of leeway, as opposed to Gamal Nasser, the predecessor, uh, before uh, Sadat, the president of Egypt, Nasser was actually a hardline nationalist and really cracked down on the religious sector in order to, and Sadat, actually, I think this was a mistake he made, was that he gave, uh, he was very lenient to the more hardline Islamist groups that arose out of that uh, presidency. And this probably led to his assassination, if you will. And when, Zawahiri was in prison, he was subjected to unrelenting torture by members of the State Security Investigation Services. I'll just call them the SSI for short. And it was found out through these torture sessions that even at a young age of 16, Al-Zawahiri led a very unique 
and clandestine cell of radical Islamists, in which Zawahiri, Al Zawahiri, taught the members about um, the ideological and Islamic framework that they should use in performing um, takfir, which is the declaration of a regime as indefinite, um, and his criteria for judging political leadership were disseminated undercover between these members. And the members uh, were the following. Said Imam Abdulaziz, quote, or uh, more commonly known as Dr. Fadl. He would be known as one of the primary founders of Islamic Jihad in Egypt and was also one of the primary founders and the architects of the founding of Al-Qaeda many years later. Um, Assem Yusuf al-Dumeri, um, a financier and a pharmacist who generated funding to the cell using the profits in which he generated from his, par- from his pharmacy. Muhammad Abdel Rahim al-Sharqawi, who was in charge of recruiting for the organization, and he too would use his employer's profits to fund the group, um, which was, he worked in a tunnery workshop. Um, Muhammad al-Zwahiri, the younger brother of Ayman al-Zwahiri, who was a civil engineer, was also another financier for the group and probably one of the more important members, Isam al-Kamari, who was a high-ranking officer in the Egyptian army. Now, he was one of the more important members and a close friend to Ayman al-Zwahiri because he had a link to other jihadi members as well as to having a link to the army itself in which they would be responsible for the assassination of Anwar Sadat. This group, um, many years later, would be named the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Now, Zwahiri, even though he received the worst of the torture assassins, not because they suspected he was a part of Sadat's assassination, in which he wasn't, well, only because he knew he was associated with members of the Egyptian, uh, uh, Egyptian army. And, they wanted, and he wants, they wanted to know the names of those involved with al-Jihad, Tanzir al-Jihad. Now, he would eventually give up his closest friend, Isam al-Kamari. Um, this, this, I think, is very important because it was at this moment, because he gave up al-Kamari, meanwhile, how he gave him up was that Ayman al-Swahiri went to the mosque, which, by the way, you know, was funnily named the Kit Kat Mosque. You, you wouldn't think that name would be like for a strip joint, but it was named uh, the Kit Kat Mosque um, in Egypt, in uh, southern Egypt. And it was during uh, the morning prayers at the local mosque in which Ayman al-Swahiri walked in. And that was uh, the code for that Kamari was present at the mosque. And the SSI came there and they eventually arrested him. This is a huge point in Zawahiri's life because he never got over this. And he didn't mind the torture, but he minded that he was actually uh, an informant for the SSI. And this bothered him. And... Um, Al-Zayat, who is the author of the book, um, noticed this in his talks with Ayman al-Zawahiri at Torah prison, in which Bolton were, were in prison, and that he says that almost on a, on a daily basis that he actually never got over uh, giving up his friend Al-Kamari, who, by the way, uh, escaped prison in 1988. He broke out and was never to be seen again, actually, whether... Um, he hit out or was executed, no one knew anything about him. Um, there were there were a many, after Nasser uh, uh, was 
after Nasser's presidency, many small jihadi groups were in Egypt at this point. Um, one of them was Gamma Islamiyah, which was led by basically university students from Upper Egypt, which was, which was considered the more enlightened part of Egypt. Um, this group was led by Karab Zohri. Um, another was Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which was led by Abu Dal-Zamar, in which uh, Ibn al-Zawahiri would later be named the successor in 1984 when Zawahiri was released from prison and Zamar was sentenced to life for being involved with Sadat's assassination, but he was released in 2011. Zomar was also a member of the Egyptian army, and he, he previously attempted to, to assassinate Sadat himself on several occasions, but he failed on multiple occasions and just left it up to Tanzim al-Jihad, the group that was responsible for killing um, Sadat. And he supplied these members, uh, most notably Khalid Dessambouli, um, who was uh, to serve as the platoon leader of uh, the security for the October 6th parade in which Sadat was killed. Zomar was a high-ranking member of the Egyptian army. And Many of the people that were involved in that uh, assassination of Sadat all were members of the Egyptian army. And in 1979, Mohammed Abdel Salam Farag managed to unite all these jihadi groups into, into one leadership. And in 1980, he made an agreement with Karim Zodi, the leader of the Gamma Islamia, to unite all these jihadi groups with the Gamma Islamia. And all these smaller groups were, the leader of that group, of the smaller groups was the infamous uh, blind sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, who at that time was a professor at the, um, the faculty of Al-Sul al-Din, which is the fundamental Islam at the Al-Zahar University in Southern Egypt. The group would, would now be renamed Tanzim al-Jihad and would be led by Farah. But after Sadat's assassination, the SSI became an immediate crackdown under Hodri Babarak on all jihadi Muslims, and mainly from two groups, the Gamma Islamiyah and the Tanji al-Jihad, led by Faraj. Muhammad, um, I'm sorry, Muhammad al-Salam Faraj. Now, Faraj is important because Faraj would author a book called The Neglected Duty, which was found in the raid of his home by Egyptian authorities, in which that book would be very important because in the book he argued that Muslims need to emulate the decrees of the Prophet Muhammad and stop practicing paganism. And much of the book uh, is discussing uh, concerning is Islamic legitimate methods of fighting. Now this is, this is really important because this is where they actually believe in the practice of, of what they call uh, taqiyya, which is um, basically lying. Uh, to propagate Islam in terms of warfare. But in this book, it goes that takfir, uh, uh, um, takia needs to be practiced in all aspects of life, and which it's deceiving the enemy, lying to him, and attacking the enemy by night and killing civilians. And this book was actually spread to the high-ranking members of Tanji al-Jihad and Gamma al-Salbiya. And then this, this ideology then disseminated to all these radical Islamic groups. And they were all, by the way, now into two primary groups. And so they were competing with each other in prison. Um, but 
uh, Farage was an avid follower of Saeed Qutub, but he had disagreements with them. Um, he had specific views which regarded their primary targets for jihadi terrorist activities, which should be local to regimes, in which he called the near enemy, in contrast to the far enemy, which he labeled Israel. Um, this was also echoed by Ayman al-Zwahiri much later on. Um, he also believed that peaceful means could never bring about a true Islamic society, echoing the same sentiments of Qutub many years ago. But the difference was is that Qutub didn't believe in uh, killing civilians, whereas Faraj actually does in order to achieve these means. Um, and the, the reason he gave for participating in Sadat's assassination was not because of him making peace with Israel, but instead it was instituting Sharia law in Egypt. And the, the first category of detainees um, that were uh, arrested by the SSI, including those actually implemented the assassination during the military parade, these were the, the primary uh, uh, suspects in assassinating Sadat. And that was Khalid al-Islambui, Abdel Hamid Abdel Salam, Atatayel Hamida Rashil, and Hussein Abbas. All these people were members of the Egyptian military. Because according to Faraj and Abdul Zayud, the key thing was to, to get uh, people within the military uh, to enact uh, a coup, so to implement Sharia law from the government and then to implement it to the public, they would follow in line. This was the essence of Qutub's ideology in which he wanted to implement uh, Sharia law or Islam, Islamic rule of governance from the government on down. The difference was that um, uh, Faraj wanted to implement it from the bottom up. And that was to uh, have the terrorist activities to civilian populations. But Ibn al-Swahiri would go a little bit further than that in that he took these ideologies of Faraj and Qutub and then implemented it abroad. And he would start killing who? The, the civilians of the uh, quote unquote, the Western imperialism powers of the United States and Israel. And so uh, the accused members in prison, Faraj and Rahman, and the rest of the members who knew of the assassination and participated one way or the other, uh, they were tried and they were found guilty to one expect. Um, Omar Abdel Rahman was hardly ever tortured and he was uh, released because he was blind. Zwahiri was released after three years. Now there's some, there's some speculation as to why um, Ayman al-Zwahiri was given such a light sentence even though he had connections to Tanzir al-Jihad, and of course he knew members of the Egyptian military. And one aspect is, um, one area of speculation is that he was continuing to be an informant for the SSI. And this led to many people to also contemplate that he was also a, um, an informer for the Central Intelligence Agency, and one person who actually believes that was Sabel Edmonds, who um, under Operation Gladiator. Um, Maybe just, um, I mean, perhaps everyone knows who Sibyl Edmonds is, so that's quite a big 
story in itself, right? But um, Sybil Edmonds is a Turkish Iranian lady right. who lived in the United States and post 9 11 worked as a translator for the FBI and later became uh, one of the most obviously, one of the prominent whistleblowers regarding uh, foreknowledge of 9 11 and went on to have this whistleblowers coalition. And yes, some of the, the presentations she gave um, referred to Ayman Azarahiri having a long running relationship with NATO, uh, particularly relating to what he his activities in the 1980s and his travel through Europe uh, into the United States, the, the, the 90s, sorry, more than 90s, um, into the United States in 1993 and his detainment in Russia for a period of several months. Um, but Sibel, um, it's a very interesting source. She's not suggesting that he was being unconsciously used by NATO right. as part of these right. false flag operations. Um, she was saying explicitly that he was a double agent working on behalf and having high level meetings with NATO members. And it's, it's really like impossible to imagine, you know, but um, something that like, it's very possible to imagine he was being used by them, right? Because as we've covered in episodes on the series, um, the CIA and the Western powers were playing this great game throughout the, um, the stands in the, in the 1990s and into the breakup of Yugoslavia of using the Mojahedin to ensure, ensure that these new emerging Azerbaijan, um, Turkmenistan uh, countries uh, were, were tilted in the direction of Western interests as opposed to Soviet interests. And the foot the force you could do that was, was this Islamic proxies and uh, to assist with the breakup of Yugoslavia for geopolitical aims. That's the, the line we went down in, in the series. Um, and yeah, Ayman al-Zarahiri and his brother Mohammed um, are players within that. So, you know, they would have been working in alignment with NATO interests. Okay. We could say that in alignment with CIA and Western corporate interests. Um, but what it's like really hard, I think, to take on board Savell's stuff about like he was going in having high level meetings with NATO guys in Azerbaijan and such. Um, but that's like, that's a bit of a mind twister, right? Like, and what does that imply? Did the Islamic sort of become a facade at some point or what? Now, obviously, people do, in this world, people do live with double identities for years of time, so that, that's a thing. Um, although, yeah, it's just hard to get one's head around. So I think, I hope we've done some justice to a sort of basic narrative of that, and we can link to presentations where Sibel is talking about this at a greater length. Um, but, yeah, what, any comments on that, Adam? Well, you know, it's interestingly enough, if you look at the, the backgrounds of intelligence regarding two members, and that's Ayman al-Swahari and Omar Abdel-Rahman, there's almost this uh, inexplicable link, which is um, that Ayman al-Swahari, who is a known uh, operative who had radical ideals, same as Rahman, and that the Egyptian intelligence, SSI, knew about these two individuals. But what they wanted to do was they wanted to, after uh, the, the trial of the uh, Sadat's assassination, was that the Egyptian military and the government itself, under Hosni Mubarak, wanted to expel these individuals, these, the, the, the more influential individuals. And that's what they did with... Um, was Zawahiri. Actually, Zawahiri was actually expelled. Um, he actually was forced to leave to, and he went to Saudi Arabia to practice uh, medicine there as well. Um, 
uh, Rachman was actually expelled, and he actually was given, even though he was under a terrorist watch list at this point by the Egyptian authorities, but he got um, a U.S. visa not once, not twice, but three times in, and in, a, in a, a U.S. embassy in Cairo that was headed by uh, agents of the CIA. And this would make your head crack. Why would the United States actually allow a known terrorist operative uh, from Gamma Islamiya, a radical Islamic group, uh, with ties to uh, other uh, radical groups like Tanzer al-Jihad, who was, was responsible for, behind Sadat's assassination, to come inside the United States? You know, I mean, at one point, Ayman al-Swahari actually came to the United States in 1990. Yeah, and was, was collecting money yeah. there, right? And right. that's meant to be for, he was meant to be collecting money for the Red Crescent for victims of landmines, right? right? And I've no particular reason to doubt that, other than uh, there was a lot of fundraising going on in the States for Mujahideen groups. And 1993 would be like the Bosnian War, right, mm -hmm. that, was, that was going on at that time. And regarding um, why uh, Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman was let in, I think I've heard two reasons for that. One was because he was um, running this Al-Qaeda center in Brooklyn, which was a part of the network which was funneling uh, money and young Muslim men across to, well, Yugoslavia, particularly, um, probably other areas in Central Asia, too, uh, at that time. Um, so that, and also, um, if there was an Islamic revolution in Egypt, ever, the way there had been in Iran, only, what, like 12 years before at that point, um, Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman was like the Ayatollah Khamenei was in Iran. Um, he, he was the, the sort of equivalent figure so it was keeping the Islamic sector on board in case, you know, just future plans of controlling Egypt. So it seems really clear from what we did looking into the 1993 bombing that the CIA were protecting Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman and his network from arrest, uh, particularly after the assassination of um, Maya Kahani, the Jewish radical, where it was pinned on a, a lone gunman, Al-Sayed Nasser, when it was just completely obvious there was a much wider conspiracy going on there. Um, so yeah, like... Rachman and that network being protected until they went too far and tried to blow up half of New York and then they, actually, they all end up in jail, right? right? So um, what's not really clear is how overt these relationships are and how aware the Islamic radical in question is that they're working. They can't be totally ignorant of it, right? Like Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman would have to be kind of thick to think like, oh, I got lucky with my visa again, you know, <laughs> um, every time, you know? So they must be aware um, that they serve Western interests to some degree, unless they just really are quite oblivious people. Um, but, like, it's not obvious to me that they, like, sit down in rooms with CIA agents and say, okay, Mr. Roman, what we want you to do is put a car bomb in the trade center on this date, you know? Um, where, where the line is, is very unclear. And it does appear to me that they, like, they are what they say on the tin as regards that they are genuine Islamic radicals who have this particular vision for society, and um, it's like a marriage of convenience with the Western intelligence agencies. And that, that will be my take on it. Like, Sabelle Edmonds goes much further. Um, Sabelle has, like, on the one hand, an immense amount of credibility because of, um, you know, she's a, a bona fide whistleblower. And I think also um, not total credibility and that she's also beholden to, like, whoever's feeding her information from, like, anonymous whistleblowing sources. And um, she has had a lot of, like, turbulent relationships let's say with uh, the researchers and journalists she's employed over the years who have walked out and said 
you know, she like makes this stuff up for, you know, she's or exaggerating, let's say, exaggerating. And if one or two people do that, then okay, but it's it's really quite a big number of Sadal. So that's like um very worth listening to, but like you've got to like listen to her with that in mind that um it's really unclear now what's going on here. I, I think you hit the nail on the head regarding that most of these people within these uh, fundamentalist groups are unwittingly participants uh, to the whims of, like, say, the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, it, it's not as simple as um, the point that in which you re- you raise here, uh, which they're sitting in a room and talking with CIA agents. Now, I, I think most of these people, like Al Zawahiri or Bin Laden or Rahman, um, even to extent uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi from the Islamic State, these are all people who are, uh, I think, unaware that they are doing the, the, the whims or the, the orders or the opera, opera, um, operations of the Central Intelligence. I think that a lot of these people are manipulated by other informants within the group too. Um, you know, Zwahi, Al Zwahiri is an intelligent individual. He's highly intelligent. Um, and to think that he's like unaware that there's the hands of intelligence uh, could be permeated within these large scale groups um, would be to feign ignorance, I think. Um, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. Adam. Obviously, when um, the CIA was supporting the um, Islamists in Afghanistan in the 1980s, right. like every Islamist there must have been aware this is not because the CIA wanted to bring about an Islamist Afghan state. They knew full well that they were fighting their interest was a proxy war against Russia and bringing down the Soviet Union, which is not the particularly the interest of the Islamists. Okay. They want to quote unquote liberate Afghanistan and bring it into an Islamic state so that they knew that was a marriage of convenience. Right. And they must recognize that that is like still the state afterwards of the state of affairs afterwards when they're being supported across Central Asia and into to Eastern Europe. You know, they're going to have that, that sense of like, that's why they're allowed to exist and do fundraising in New York City and across the United States. All right, let me put it to you this way. Ayman al-Swahiri wrote a book called Knights Under the Prophet's Banner. And in the book, he actually admits that um, the CIA actually did fund other warlords like Gulbuddin Hekmatar, um, Abdul Rasul Sayyaf of the Northern Alliance, um, Jalaluddin Haqqani, who was the leader and founder of the Haqqani Network, major big Afghan tribal leaders. These are way bigger than bin Laden never dreamed to be. And these are the people who actually got millions and millions of dollars from not just the CIA, um, but the British MI6, uh, the Pakistan ISI, or the Saudi GID, even the Mossad at one point. So to you know, Zwahiri even admits. But one thing he he states uh, publicly is that bin Laden never received CIA money directly. Now, there's something called the trickle-down effect, where the CIA actually does state in their Operation Cyclone paper, which you can, you can find on PDF, that they did fund the Maktab al-Kidamat, which is the Afghan Services Bureau, headed by Azam, later taken over by Swahiri and Bin Laden after Zahm was killed. This office is then extended to a United States and New York, Arizona, the two major centers for it, and the funding kept going there. Now, 
whether received whether bin Laden received the money, I, I don't think he you know ever received CIA money directly. But there's we no, can't. But there's no proof of that, right? Right, right. There's no proof, but I I don't dismiss it. But like I said, with the trickle down effect, that money may have gotten to him in some or for fashion. Zawahiri even states it in the book, Knights of the Prophet Bounty, he goes that the CIA actually likes to uh, be arrogant in their, their wishes for the, the Islamists uh, beating the Soviets in Afghanistan, where he says it wasn't, it wasn't the CIA, it was the Islamists who were, in, who were uh, the reason behind the, the, ex, uh, the expelling of the Soviet military. Well, actually, yeah, I mean, most accounts I've read say that the, um, the Afghan Arab, the foreign fighters were yes. incidental. Sorry, it was the Afghans that were the major right. force, and the foreign fighters themselves, like right. the, the Sarahus right. and the Ladens, were, mm-hmm. were there. Um, like some accounts say they were just making a nuisance of themselves, basically. Yes. That they, they were nutters who wanted martyrdom. Mm-hmm. They were going and like waving flags in front of Soviet guns in the hope of being killed so they could go get their, their virgins in paradise. Um, whereas the actual the Afghans were overwhelmingly the numbers. That, uh, and even CIA money, like Gorbachev Hekmajar, who was, as we stated before, just the most vile human being you could imagine, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, just absolutely medieval in his, his and how barbaric it was. Um, you know, he's, um, some people believed he was a Soviet, Soviet double agent, uh, simply because his actions, what, what he did with the CIA's money was so inefficient that people speculated he was actually working for the other side. And it's likely that he, was, he wasn't. He was just like, using the funds to position himself by warring with other Afghan groups to, so that he will come out on top in the, in the um, struggles of in Afghanistan, right? So, um, yeah, you could say, like, well, how effective, was, how effective was the money going in then? You know, it seemed to be creating more problems than, than it was solving. For sure. Uh, a lot of that money actually went to the group he headed and founded, which was the Hizb Islamiyah. And I think... I, I, well, it's not proven. I'll, I'll speculate here, and a lot of that funding went to the Taliban as well because he waited until the last minute to join the Taliban because he actually was friend with um, Ahmad Shah Massoud, who at that point was now the leader of the Northern Alliance, who was fighting the Taliban uh, for power within Afghanistan in the Second Civil War. Um, Afghanistan saw two civil wars uh, between. Uh, the warring factions that were left to fight for scraps for the country. But the the second civil war saw the fight between two major groups. And that was the Taliban headed by Mullah Omar and uh, the Northern Alliance headed by Ahmed Shah Massoud. And it wasn't until the Taliban started gaining, uh, until they took over Kabul, the, the capital of Afghanistan, that Hekmatar actually sided with the Taliban. And, it, and I think a lot of that money went to the Taliban and, um, and they took over the country afterwards. Um, and they renamed it the Islamic, I think the, the Islamic State of, of Afghanistan or something like that. I, I, don't hold me to it, but um, Ayman al-Swahiri was long gone by then. In fact, he went to um, the Sudan with, uh, Saudi, with uh, Osama bin Laden because bin Laden actually goes before the, the the kingdom, and because Saudi Arabia was fearing uh, Iraq was going to invade Saudi Arabia because they supposedly invaded Kuwait, which we find out it is not true, and that the that, that the army, the Iraqi army, was at the border of um, Kuwait and ready to invade Saudi Arabia, but they found out that the photographs were documented. Yeah, they, they did invade just the way. Just, uh, of course, about how that came across, they did, obviously did invade Kuwait. 
Um, right. There was a suggestion that they were lined up on the Saudi border, right. um, but I think the Russian satellite imagery demonstrated that wasn't the case. Yeah, right. right, that they were not. Saddam Hussein was not going to drive all the way to Jeddah. That's right. In fact, I don't think he would have gotten to the center itself. But anyway, the kingdom was really worried, and they were actually uh, contemplating whether the United States would have come and to you know become the military force in which they needed to expel uh, the um, the uh, the Iraqi army. So Bin Laden goes before the kingdom, and he and he produces this outrageous uh, theory that because they uh, expelled the Soviet military, he would use the same Mujahideen fighters to expel the Iraqi army. And the kingdom actually said no. And It was Prince Turkey, wasn't it? said, thank you very much. We'll call you. I think right, he, for sure. Oh, he says he said. Right, but they were worried. They were worried about uh, the Mujahideen actually uh, um, invading the kingdom because they allowed the United States to come and um, because it's considered the most holiest site in Islam that bin Laden said this would be, you know, it's a sacrilege to allow the, the kafir, the non-believer, to become uh, uh, the, the force, the military force for Saudi Arabia. So Tur Prince Turkey actually goes. Um, uh, this is uh, reported by Lawrence Wright in the Looming Tower, where he says that Turkey did a backdoor deal with bin Laden and says that we'll unfreeze your assets and give you back your passport, but you have to leave the country. And so he goes to the Sudan, and who follows him? Ayman al-Swahiri. And Ayman al-Swahiri takes those same ideological tenets, which I described to you earlier, and then procures them in the, um, the FATWA of 1998, in the, the new organization called the World Islamic Front, where I said that the, the big quote in there is that you are to kill American and Israeli civilians wherever you find them, which is a stark contrast to the first fatwa Bin Laden as Wahiri impl implicate, uh, assert in 1996, where he says you are to kill just American military in Saudi Arabia. That was it. But that changes in 1998 because Wahiri is a leading figure, a, ma a major figure in Bin Laden's life um, and becomes the ideologue that Bin Laden actually um, absolves into his ideology. And what I'm saying is that Bin Laden actually wasn't this militant that, you know, the American American government actually likes to, to have you believe that he was always this militant. He wasn't. And he was actually manipulated by the ideologies of Ayman al-Swahiri. That's why I want to make that clear in the beginning of our presentation, where Swahiri gets those ideologies and what those ideologies imply for the future, because what comes after Al-Qaeda? Well, the worse, the Islamic State. Um, answer uh, answer uh, Dar al-Islam. Um, you know, all these groups that became the face of Syria, Libya, look at all these groups now, they're much more radical. To give you, put this in perspective, in 2011, Ayman al-Zwahiri actually um, makes a video and a declaration that Al-Qaeda wants nothing to do with the Islamic State. So here you have one terrorist organization actually thinking that this organization is much too um, turbulent and radical in their views. And the reason was, was because the Islamic State actually kills Shiite Muslims, more so than, say, you know, 
Israelis or American people, then the biggest killer of, of, of Muslims are Muslims themselves because the Islamic State doesn't represent anything about Islam or the, 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 the Quran itself. These ideologies are manifested from Zwahiri's ideologies and now almost evolved or de-evolved into this um, monstrosity that the Islamic State extols now in their beliefs. And that's why you see Islamic State members actually just killing even members within their own group because they're not, uh, they're not extolling this radical view or they're being too moderate. So, you know, you have to wonder, like, what comes out of them? More, uh, more uh, ex uh, external? Yeah, it's funny how this is a truism about extremist groups, right? Like, you saw, we saw this in um, Adam Curtis's documentary about the extremist groups in Algeria, that one of them got down to just having four people in who decided they were going to murder everyone else in Algeria, and they could do this. It would be their jihad, right? And so I was just reading, just on a, a, a different place and time altogether, um, I was reading one of the biographies of the, one of the women who has left um, the Westboro Baptist Church, the famous God Hates Fags Church in the States, right? Now, the, the patriarch that was the head of that whole thing, Pastor Fred Phelps, yeah, he ended up being excommunicated at the end of it, you know, because like the next generation tends to eat the previous generation, you know, because they're not radical enough, not firm enough in their beliefs. So, you know, he was like left to die alone in a state of dementia and, um, well, going toward the church members was hellbound for it, you know. So it's just a kind of truism about, um, you know, groups that take on hardline ideologies. They tend to, like every generation surpasses the next in its extremity. For sure. This actually was also a major point of contention, even, and I'll go back uh, to Torah prison, where all these Egyptian Islamists were in jail. There was a, a, um, an argument between Ayman al-Swahiri and Omar Abdel Rahman, because Zwahiri and members of the Tanzir al-Jihad thought uh, Omar Abdel Rahman was inept because he was blind and couldn't lead. And they thought that the Gamma Islamia group wasn't extolling um, more radical views in itself, because later on, as we talked off camera before, Gamma Islamia actually makes a peace agreement with the, the Egyptian government. And this actually was something that Ibn al-Zwahiri found to be quite um, uh, contradicted to what the Tanzir al-Jihad or the Egyptian Islamic Jihad was against because they wanted to uh, keep fighting against the, the government itself because they figured that uh, the government is the one that needs to change and that Gamma Islamia was a group that um, wasn't too radical in their... In their was that efforts. after the Luxor massacre they made the agreement? Yeah, this was after, because that was... I'm glad you brought this up. That just, just, say what, just say briefly what the Luxor massacre was and what year it was. It was, um, I think, 1995, 96. No, I think it was 97, actually. I don't oh, 90, was it? I, I was just calculating. I was in Egypt, and I think it was six years afterwards in 2000. So I think it was 97 now, I, I think, yeah. That, that was a huge uh, moment within the, the Gamma Islamia itself because they actually got rid of uh, Faraj and Rahman became the leader in absentia because at this point Rahman's in jail. But that was a negative effect because it killed so many people within 
I, I think it was like most. Yeah, but they machine gun people in Luxor Temple and they shot them in the legs so they couldn't right, get and up. They, and right, and they and, them off. Right, and then they hacked them to death mm. afterwards. Uh, yeah, and that right, and it was a huge. It was like a uh, a huge international uh, crime. I mean, ma major uh, leaders from the United States, the Soviets, even the Ch uh, Chinese, because there was a lot of Asian tourists uh, in the buses itself that were in the, uh, the, the, the massacre within the pyramids itself. I mean, huge international outcry to crack down these groups. Sure, well, when I was in Egypt a few years later, actually, everywhere we went, there were like guards with machine guns. Really? You know? yeah. Oh yeah, because they were like super keen to protect the tourist trade because it, it just hammered their economy. And after that, with people not turning up there. So yeah, sure. like armed guards everywhere. You know, ironically, Egypt it feels like a very safe country to to walk around there and, and all the rest. It's a very like friendly and welcoming place. Um, but yeah, there's just like you know they, they were very very concerned about tourist security. Well, that, that's why they hated Hosni Mubarak because he was such a a staunch uh, uh, opponent toward the radical Islamist view. And he, you know, he was actually for those who don't know. He actually was injured in Sadat's assassination. He was actually shot in the hand. Um, but there are some people that believe that he may have been a part of the assassination itself. I don't, there's no evidence to suggest that. Brave man if he was, right? <laughs> take right, a in for the sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure itself. Because he was right, he was actually sitting next to Sadat. I think he was one row up where Sadat was sitting at. And then, I mean, you're right in the middle of it. But um, Sadat was was uh, was killed immediately. Shot like seven times, and you know precision shots. I mean, they went right up into the facade, uh, the the um, the facade, if you will, that area. But it was like I think there was eleven or twelve people, high-ranking military members, that were sitting there. And Mubarak is sitting right in front of him, and Mubarak actually survived. But it was said that Mubarak actually, uh, because of that, he was really. Uh, 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 such a staunch uh, uh, opponent to the radical Islamic cell, and I think that was the reason why. Whereas they, you know they created the the monster that they didn't have to, right? They didn't injure him. But Mubarak became the leader for the for Egyptian. He was the I think he was a president for thirty years. But um, even years later, I mean, you have major Islamic organizations that were even uh, that hated Mubarak because of it, and because he expelled all these. Uh, major leaders, but by doing that too, look what Mubarak did. He created these uh, groups, and they became more radical outside of Egypt. So you wonder if it had the the opposite effect in which he wanted. But it, at least it didn't happen in his backyard of Egypt, right? What does he care about what's happening in the United States or or um, uh, Afghanistan or in uh, Algeria? Or, you know, all these groups that went into other areas as well, but. I mean, Al Swahiri, it's, he's still alive. And here's a guy who's been on the radar for decades and decades. And it makes you, and it makes you wonder, right? You know, how well, you, say, you say he's on the radar. I put his name into YouTube right, just prior to doing this. And there's a recent clip comes up. It's about two months old because he released a video um, around the time of September 11th this year celebrating the attack, okay? All the other videos below that on YouTube are like five, six, seven years old, right? There's been very little interest in him. I mean, maybe because ISIS has been like the big thing for the past several years now. Um, but as, as the leader of Al Qaeda and the, the number two in command of it on the day of 
he doesn't really no, no one seems to pay much attention to Ayman al-Zahiri you know, he's just hiding out um, that suspected in the Afghan-Pakistan region with no real access to phones or anything because he can't you know he'd be tracked um, but yeah just surprisingly how, how like the world's kind of forgotten about him yes and you know even after immediately after the September 11th attacks you barely ever heard that name I mean it wasn't until after bin Laden's supposed assassination in Pakistan in 2011, then you heard the name al-Swahiri because he took over as the emir of al-Qaeda. But even then, afterwards, very, very few um, journalists would ever report upon the man himself. And here's, here's a guy who has a long, illustrious um, career in Islamist circles, longer than bin Laden longer than anybody alive at this point. Um, but what dominated the, the media spectrum? Uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the founder of Islamic State. Uh, his predecessor, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Um, but these are people who are short-lived. They don't have that long, illustrious career as al-Zawahiri. And you would think that those in the intelligence apparatuses, like the CIA, like the Mossad or um, the Pakistan ISI would have this guy's a face on matchbooks, on posters, on everywhere you go. Nothing. There's literally nothing. Even though there is a, um, I believe that it's a ten million dollar reward uh, for relating anyone for relating information about him. Um, I could be wrong about the the amount, but I think it's ten. Yeah, it's in that region, isn't it? Whether it's right. Whether you're alpha human, that's it's enough money to make it right. I, I, well, well, nice. let, let let me give you an example. Look what they did with Ramzi Yusuf, for example. Okay, I think his his um, his reward is a lot shorter, was a lot less than Amal Swahiri's, and he was found within two years. Okay, they had his face on matchbooks. I mean, they I, I have yeah. So now, in in fairness, Ramzi Yusuf like nearly blew up a hotel room, right? And that's how right. He, so he remained active and did stupid things, which you know that that, that whole story is to be even partially believed. I mean, it's, the basis of it is true. Right. Then um, you know he kind of like had he just gone into hiding in eastern Afghanistan, he might have stood a better chance. Okay, but on on the same on I will, I will, my contra, my counterpoint to that was that Al Swahiri was actually. Um, also behind the 1998 East Africa bombings. In fact, he was actually considered part of it, even though, um, you know, that's questionable, but still he was a part of it. But and also to the September 11th attacks. I mean, he's actually on video um, when the United States invaded Afghanistan with Suleiman Abu Ghaith, who was the uh, media arm, one of the major media arms of al-Qaeda, and Osama bin Laden, and he actually is admitting to being a participant of stuff like I just I'm just using it as an example of like here's a guy who everyone in the world is after I mean at one point but he's actually almost forgotten and yeah. yes I mean if you google his name and you it's a bit, if you look at video there's nothing out there really it's almost like a, a desolate wasteland of information regarding the man himself which is the reason why we wanted to talk about him today because mm -hmm. you know there's a lot there's a lot behind him to understand and why he's important and why the the ideological background in which he carries to this very day 
is important to what the groups that we see today came from and what they're formed from. Hmm. Well, like, I mean, final point from me, Adam, when we looked at Algeria in the series, part of the reason we focused a bit more on Algeria um, than Egypt in the sort of early 1990s and the, the civil war there was because there was more evidence, I suppose, of the Algerian government um, doing a gladio operation with the Islamist groups, as in there were employees of the government, um, as well as human rights groups, um, employees blowing the whistle and human rights groups talking about the proximity of Algerian soldiers to massacres, um, you know, making the claim that the, um, the Algerian government infiltrated the Islamist groups and drove them towards a greater level of violence as a way of discrediting them, okay? Um, and yeah, there's, there's like evidence for that. And that's like, I say Gladio, that, that term coming from um, when the political right in Italy uh, were doing that to the political left as a part of a wider NATO operation to keep communism out of Europe during the, the Cold War. Um, like with Egypt, I'm always like less certain, right, of the, the extent to which the state infiltrated the terrorist groups there and so on. And uh, I, I'm just, I don't have such a clear picture. And that comes through when we talk about things like the 1993 bombing and Imad Salem, the um, quote-unquote ex-Egyptian army officer who infiltrated uh, the cell. Uh, but Hans Mubarak was later quoted in the New York Times um, saying that they had a man in the cell, right? So who was that? Was that at that point? Was that another guy um, in the cell, you know? So like to what extent the Egyptian um, army and intelligence uh, agents have infiltrated, you know, the, the is I, I don't feel as clear on that. I, I've always said that with large scale terrorist organizations like a um, a Tanzer al-Jihad or a Gamma Islamia, you would be hard-pressed not to believe that at some point these intelligence uh, agencies haven't infiltrated these groups in one way or another. I've always felt that way with al-Qaeda. Um, I feel that way with the Islamic State. And why would it end, why would it, why would it not start with groups like the Egyptian Islamic Jihad or Tanzer al-Jihad? And it would make it easier for these Arab intelligence agencies to infiltrate these groups because why? They already speak the language of Arabic. Um, they are familiar with the organizations and their religious tenets at first, okay? And so it'd be easier for them to infiltrate these groups within itself and gather data, as opposed to say like um, the CIA, uh, a Western intelligence organization infiltrating Al-Qaeda and, and, and having these people um, mimic uh, the the culture of like Farsi or sure, Saudi. Sure, and yeah. that's, there, there's a group in Israel called the Mustab, uh, Mr. Arvin, which are a group of Israelis, Arab Israelis, um, who go and learn of the language of Farsi or Arabic, and they're made to understand the culture of the Palestinians or the Arab groups like in Le Hezbollah in Lebanon, or Hamas in Palestine and other Arab groups, and they infiltrate these neighborhoods and they, they stay there for long periods of time. Now we'll talk about this in a future episode. Yeah, sure. But but that's but that just goes to show you that these Arab organizations, intelligence uh, organizations like the SSI in Egypt, I think for sure. And I, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I but think no, maybe, maybe someone can like, if anyone knows anything about this, um, you know, 
drop us a message because I, I feel I feel like we made some headway in understanding that in the Algerian situation and with Saudi Arabia too, right? We, we were talking before the podcast about um, Abu Zubaydah, right? The um, Al Qaeda recruiter guy who was who was found in Afghanistan, interrogated by the FBI, and um, then the CIA tried to freak him out by making out he was in a, a Saudi prison. And he went, oh, thank goodness, my Saudi friends, they'll sort it out. Just call this prince and he'll tell you, they know all about Al Qaeda. We have a working relationship. And that, that was kind of the story. So you can see that um, the Saudi state has this like relationship with Al Qaeda. You know, but Egypt as a country, like, I don't feel, I don't really know, right? I don't know much about, like, it's been written about that or done about the, the relationship between the security services and um, the, the terrorists there. You know, but maybe there is one, but... Um, yeah, it's just a bit more of a, a blank, blank space, Egypt. Yeah, and, and meanwhile, this is the, the, the origins of Al-Qaeda, right? I mean, Egypt is the basis for most of the Islamist organizations from the 1970s and 80s, which gave way to the organizations that we see today globally in uh, Indonesia or, or uh, in Iraq, in um, Libya, for example, all these yeah, and ideologically going back to Saeed Qutb as well, you know, the right, right, so right, right the way back, Egypt, right, like, it, central. That's exactly right. In fact, um, you know, you go back far enough, you'll find a starting point for how all this ide- uh, ideologies that permeated today uh, came back to the epicenter of political Islam, as they say, with uh, Saeed Qutb, and you know what came after Qutb was. Like uh, incrementally worse, right? Because at the Qutb, you have, um, uh, you know, Ibn al-Swahiri, you have uh, uh, Muhammad al-Faraj, who I was talking about earlier, and all these ra- more radical individuals, Rahman, and then what came after them, uh, uh, you know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, you know, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, um, and all these other far, far orthodox extremist individuals who have no regard for not just religious uh, uh, tenets because they know anything about these people don't read the Quran. They, they're illiterate. Most of these people um, I'm talking about the muscle, you know, not the leaders themselves, but um, uh, all these people are basically ignorant regarding the very premise in which they say they're extolling, which is Quran, the Islamic uh, Islamic faith itself. Okay, Adam, uh, in the interest of some degree of brevity, we might start to bring this to a close. Any more, anything more to say on the subject of Ayman? No, I, I think that's basically about it, Richard. Great. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. I found it very educational and uh, hope our listeners did too. And uh, yeah, we'll be back to pick up on um, a theme. I don't know what will be next time. It might be the Israeli intelligence angle. It might be... Um, something to do with uh, Colleen Rowley, the whistleblower we've talked about doing that. So, well, the, the, that's, yeah, uh, that'll be Zacharias Masawi, the, the, the 20th, Zacharias Masawi, the 20th hijacker. We'd be, we'd be going down that road then. So one of those themes we'll pick up on next time and, and hopefully have a guest on uh, at some point too. Thank you very much, Adam. Hey, thank you, Richard. <laughs>